one of my favorite subjects, and I think a subject that needs to be preached and taught over and over and over again in the climate that we're living in right now. And the title is just Generation to Generation, and I'm going to start with Genesis, the fifth chapter, verses 21 through 24. And then we're going to go to Deuteronomy 19 and 14 and Proverbs 22 and 28. And then we're really moving around, then Jeremiah 6, 16 and 17. But in Genesis 5, 21 through 24, and Enoch lived 60 and 5 years, and he begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and 5 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Deuteronomy 19.14, Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which that of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. Proverbs 22.28, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Jeremiah 6.16 and 17, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, ask for the old path, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Also I sent watchmen over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not hearken. You may be seated in Jesus' name. Wednesday night, uh, I... Uh, Men came and prayed for me, and then someone else came up from behind and prayed for me. And I was, at the point that I was being prayed for, I was in so much pain, and I thought I was going to have to leave. And I told, I got to tell just a couple of people afterwards, uh, that uh, as soon as people had prayed for me, the pain left. And I'll be honest with you, I, outside of soreness, I've not had that, that particular pain since. So I thank everybody that prayed. I have not had that. So I, uh, God really touched me, and it meant so much. Um, let's, let's, let's do, I don't really need this, but it's just fun to use it. Um, my wife said, I don't walk around today, and I said, oh, I'll try not to. Let's say you're standing before God, getting ready to get your rewards for all that you've done. And, um, you know, you... First off, you could say, would, it, would you prefer just getting, if you had a preference, would you prefer just getting accolades from Jesus saying, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or, or possibly, you know, the jeweled crown that you should have with all those great big emeralds and rubies and diamonds and all that's in there, uh, you know, for all the work that you did while you were here on earth and all the people that you want. Would that all sound good to you? Would you prefer that? Anybody? Well, either one. I mean, is there anything else that you would prefer having? Let me just ask you that. You just want it in the door? Okay, gotcha. Just in the door. Okay, just in the door. So. Now, you know, when I read this, I love this thing. Uh, the... Uh, <laughs> The uh, the uh, you know I, I I looked at it and I, I thought well now before I really read through it I uh, I thought well now what would I like because honestly a jewel crown means very little to me I don't care less and I I want to hear the Lord say well done thy good and faithful servant but really when it comes right down to it 
the best thing that could happen to me is to see my children and my grandchildren there with me. That is the greatest thing that you could ever have. You know, Solomon said this. He said, children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their fathers, in Proverbs 17 and 6. He was simply saying that we are edified by the success of our children and our grandchildren. That's what he was saying. We are edified by that success. To know that beside me were my children and grandchildren, you can keep the crown. I could care less. I, I think sometimes we, we, because by nature, human beings are selfish, that sometimes all we really think about is, you know, I'm fighting this good fight down here. I want this big reward when I get in heaven. And, I, and I'm not, a, please understand something. I think that people do deserve big rewards to get to heaven. But the biggest reward is to know that our children have made it and our grandchildren. That's the greatest reward. You know, in a relay race, anybody ever run track? I ran it. I was the slowest person that ever ran. Uh, but I actually ran in one. I was uh, junior, junior high, I guess. And I ran in the relay race. And I knew just enough to know that if I was running in this relay race, that the most important thing you can do is get the baton passed off correctly. In fact, if you mess up by just a half second, you can, you can lose the whole race as a result of that. So the most important thing to do in a relay is to be able to pass off the baton at the right time, the right moment, and be sure that everything that that, that person in front of you has a good hold on it, and then they can continue that race. And you understand that in that, we, we are the same way. We, as, as and I'm getting there, at my age and up, we're getting ready to hand things off. We're getting ready to give it to the next generation. And if I'm off just a little bit in handing off, it's going to mess up that whole next generation. And I don't care what you have to say. And I said, God has really dealt with me a lot and, 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 and expect, you know, in, in a lot of things, in uh, understanding and, 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 and the fact of compassion. But the greatest compassion and understanding that I can have is that I have to be sure this next generation has got the right way to go. That they understand what they need to do. That they understand the Word of God. And we cannot let up in this last day just simply to fill up pews. We cannot do that. I want everybody to be saved. And I'll do everything I can to see people saved. But I will never, ever back down on the truths of the Word of God. Because if I love people, I'm going to be sure that people have the truths of the Word of God. Let's give Him a hand clap. You know, that, that shift is going to happen. And we've got to be sure the principles, the values, and the patterns, listen to me, the patterns of living will be changed, or, or, or will be changed and accepted or rejected by the ones that's following. You know, we've we, we got to understand that they will be, and it's going, to be, it's going to be according to how we hand them off. It's going to be according to what we give them. These patterns of how we live and what success, listen, this living for God, 
and in every avenue in our holiness and our commitment to God is important if we're going to make it. If we're going to be successful in our walk with God here in this life, we still have to live according to the patterns that God has handed us. That is the only way. The history of nations and, and religious movements and even families continually demonstrate this life cycle of change. There's going to be change. And, and that's what I want to show you here this morning. I just want to, I want you to be able to understand biblically some of the generations of change. In fact, we're going to get into some areas. Some years ago, uh, I, uh, I got a hold of a book and, and, um, and I, in that particular book, I, it, it was, it was called the, it's Daniel Butler. I still got the book. It's called The Last Generation of Truth. And, and the, he simply talked about, and in fact, I preached a message or taught, I don't remember which it was, uh, about the sectarian cycle. And I'm going to get into that in just a moment, but the, it is so good, it is so relevant in this time. This has been several years ago that, that I read this, and he was an apostolic writer, and he, um, he really laid out what I see occurring right now and what has occurred historically throughout every major denomination. I don't consider us a denomination, but we are. <laughs> I mean, you can argue with me if you want to, but a lot of the apostolic movement was, uh, was what well, UPC actually was considered a fellowship, uh, a loose fellowship, but it has almost become denominational to some degree. Now, you know, that may change again, but I can see some, some of the same areas occurring in, in the UPC that has made us almost denominational. But let's look at some of these in, historically. One of, the, one of the saddest commentaries that you can see, and we see this in the, in the life of Cain, is that he went out from the presence of the Lord in Genesis 4.15. Now, Cain went away from the communion of God's presence about the same way that Judas did. In fact, you can see in John 13 and 30, it should come up here, in John 13 and 30, it says, He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Now, I like that because when, when Judas left Jesus Christ, it was night. Because when you leave the presence of God, there is nothing but darkness that fills your life. There's nothing but darkness that fills you. In Cain's uh, case, he went to the land of Nod, which simply means wandering. And his, his life was a life from then on of wandering. Symbolic, if you would, of the wonder that he became. Moses listed the generation of Cain's family in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. The fifth generation from Cain was Lamech. Lamech was the first one to take two wives. He also, that fifth generation, was the next person that the Bible records of killing someone. So you see how that was passed down five generations. Five generations it was passed down. Two wives, and he committed murder. Adam and Eve accepted the birth of Seth as a gift from the Lord in replacement for their loss of their son Abel. The book of Genesis lists the generation of Seth's family, which have evidently represented God's righteous legacy. And in fact, it says in Genesis 4:26, "...and to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then men began, or then began men to call upon the name of the Lord." God extended grace to Seth's family by choosing a person from his lineage to build an ark and to save the human race from destruction. You see the two different lineages going off. 
You see how that one generation affected the next generation and so on and so on. We cannot, as God's people, in this last day, this, this time, this anticipation that we have of the sunset, we're living in the sunset generation. We cannot let up and wind up having a group of people miss the rapture of the church because we decided the world was more important than our relationship with God. I'm going to live for God regardless of what the cost may be. We're going to live for God. We're going to give Him everything we can. We're going to give Him our heart, our soul, our mind, our body. We're going to give ourselves to Him in totality. In the midst of an evil generation before the flood, Enoch walked with God by faith. And the book of Jude calls Enoch a prophet. And Enoch, also there was a book, by the way, written. It's not ever been canonized. Uh, but there was the book of Enoch that at one time the Catholic Church used. Uh, and it said, And Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these sayings. In fact, the prophecies is considered to be written in the book of Enoch. And he said, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints in Jude 14. Enoch was the first man about whom the Scripture declared he was translated, that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. Why? Because the righteous seed from Seth continually, generationally was passed down, passed down, passed down. There was something good in them. I, I, I believe that we have got something good that has been passed down to us. We have got something good that God has given us. And we have an obligation to pass it down to the next generation. My children, my grandchildren, and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. I have got to set the moral example for them that God and only God can give us and place in our hearts. Don't let us let down. We cannot let it down now. This righteous man demonstrated, in fact, it said that his testimony pleased God in Hebrews 11, verse 5, but it said this righteous man demonstrated that regardless of the society in which a person lives, he can please God. Regardless of the society that he lives in, he can please God. This Facebook, Twittering, email generation, you can still please God. This video game generation, you can still please God. This pornography generation can still please God. In other words, regardless of what's coming up around you, you can still make a decision that I will live for God. I will please God. My children will not see a bad example out of me. This is what Enoch demonstrated. We can do the same thing. Our, our peers nor our circumstances should dictate our morals. Our peers and our circumstances should never dictate our morals. I got the paper this morning. I drove down. You know, I and that, that's hard on the old man. To drive down to get the paper, but it was a slick. I was, afraid, I was afraid that if I got down, it'd be a job for my wife to get me up. So I went down, got the paper, because I hate the paper. You know how I hate the paper. It's just, it's just, well, don't you know? It, it's, it's an addiction. It's on Sunday addiction. I opened it up and had good news immediately. I said, "Thank God, these Colts finally lost, so we don't have to listen to this stuff." <laughs> 
Now I don't have to listen to that junk. And there would have been Super Bowl Sunday, and then I had to listen to that. Our circumstances should never dictate our morals, right? <laughs> giving us hope, giving us hope for a, a similar visitation. That's what Jesus promised the church. It's the same thing that Enoch had. He pleased God, and God translated him, changed him, took him to heaven. So the Lord rescued Enoch out of the world because he had walked with him and pleased him. And the Lord will rescue those who walk and please him today. That's what the rapture of the church is all about. According to, to 1 Thessalonians 4.15, Acts 1 and 11, 1 John 1, 4 through 5, it is the translation of the church. In other words, there is a promise that there will be a church on this world. There is a promise of that. No matter how bad things may get, how many people fall away, there will be somebody who is alive and remains that will make it up in the rapture of the church. I plan on being one of those. I don't know how you are planning it, but I'm planning on being one of those that pleases God and God took him. Mankind has become blatantly evil in the days before the flood, or mankind did, rather, in Genesis 6, 5 through 7. The wickedness, the Bible says, of mankind grieved God so greatly that He decided to destroy all living creatures from the face of the earth. The one bright spot in this desperately dark landscape was that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Every time I teach a Bible study, I get to this particular point in the in the search for truth bible study and, and i'll say this i said every one of us ought to thank god repeatedly that noah found grace in the eyes of the lord because if noah hadn't found grace in the eyes of the lord your precious little body wouldn't be here right now so somebody generationally kept passing down some good things until some you ever stop and think about this Let, let's put us in a different perspective let's put this into perspective if you've got a family member somewhere that that just that you just can't reach or is too far away lives too far away aren't you glad that somebody somewhere passing down good values this apostolic message could be in the same vicinity of that person or they could meet that person on the job or they could meet that person on the street god can send the right person who somebody has passed down this wonderful message to that can reach that loved one that you could never reach God testified that he was a just man, Noah, and perfect in his generation. In a world filled with thousands of people, Noah and his family of eight were the only ones who found favor with God. Not only was it a lonely place, but it was also a highly honored place of great responsibility. Before God sends his judgment, he always sends a warning. God charged Noah with the responsibility of building an ark to save his family while warning the world of the coming flood, according to Hebrews 11:7. Peter called Noah a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 2.5. The overwhelming, I, I love this about Noah, because the overwhelming negative response that he got when he preached never stopped him from preaching. Now you think about that. He had an overwhelming, and because, because of his continuing to preach the message, he justified, by preaching that message, he justified God's judgment. you understand that? Because he never backed down, you had a man of faith. And because that one man believed God, he justified God's judgment. In other words, you cannot set back. I heard something on the, oh, it just 
and I tell you, bad morning for me. Got in, I got in the, uh, got in the car, and my wife had the radio on, and there was some guy telling that that the devil was going to be thrown into hell, and he was going to be consumed. And you read the 20th chapter of the book of Revelations that says his torment will continue forever and ever and ever. Now, he just said this. He didn't give any scripture behind it. The devil will not be consumed. If you go to hell, you will not be consumed. Your torment will go up forever and ever and ever. said the smoke of their torment in the book of Matthew will go up forever and ever and ever. It will continue to go up. And continue, torment will continue. So I'm saying, what are you saying that for? I don't know, I just thought I'd throw it in there. Um, <laughs> regardless of the negative that you get, that what I just said there, a lot of people don't like that they would prefer not to believe. There's a lot of people in church who prefer not to believe in hell. And regardless of what kind of negative comes back at you, you still justify God's judgment by the fact that one person believes it. If in this church, one person, one person alone believes in the essentiality of speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance, if only one person believes that, that means God is justified in judging 10 million others. One person. One person believing it can make all the difference in the world. This is what justified through, through or Noah. Through his faithfulness, Noah condemned the world and justified God's judgment. His faith moved him to action, and his obedience to God's call validated his faith. James declared that faith without works is dead. Because a man has faith and believes what God says, there is something about that that should prompt us to go on and do something about it. I know I've been down a little bit and sick, but we've not. Unless you baptized somebody while I was anybody baptized anyone while I was gone? We did. Okay, I mean, I was getting a bad attitude. I was going to start kicking the Bible stand because because somebody needs to be baptized in this church. We should be every service, but I'll take what I can get for right now. But it's time to go back into revival. All right, it's time to go back into revival. You say, you shouldn't say things like that, kick the Bible stand. I believe that I should. Because we need to be reaching everybody that we can possibly reach. And sometimes kicking the Bible stand wakes you up. I'm not going to kick it in my left foot. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go back to the last generation of truth. If you get an opportunity to buy that particular book, buy that book. It'll help you, especially ministers. It'll help you to understand just about what we're dealing with. I'm going to touch a little bit on it. This particular lesson touches on it. I may get a little bit more detail than what it does. Uh, the sectarian cycle, which is what this book um, is talking about. And let me, let me define the sectarian cycle. It means frequently recurring trends in the life of religious movements and denominations. So simply, the, the cycle means it's something that continues to reoccur. To reoccur. And so he had done some study on these particular trends. And this is where this book came from. And he writes this. He said, the trend in the first, for the first generation to grow. The trend is, rather, for the first generation to grow the second to reach a peak, and the third to experience decline. He said because of intellectualism, rationalization, he said, and, the, and that's why it declines. The third generation often rejects divine truths, and consequently, because of this, you understand, and this is what you're seeing in a lot of Pentecostal movements right now. But, you know, what, used to, what began in the Spirit 
They're trying to finish in the, in the flesh. The Bible talks against that. We cannot begin something in the Spirit and finish it through rationalization and intellectualism. And if we're not careful, that's exactly what's happening. In fact, you are seeing that occur now. That, that always concerns me when I see churches all of a sudden uh, begin to say, well, we can't have worship anymore because it runs visitors off. We can't have you running the aisles or dancing or doing anything because visitors will think we're crazy. You see, that very thing, I, you know, I, of course, I was raised around it, so I, I never did believe it was crazy. I believe it was the only thing there was. But I, I, can, I can get out in the congregation and tell you that some of you thought we were crazier than loons, but there was something about it that drew you back the second time. And it drew you back, and it drew you back. Why? Because you understood something about this, and most everybody does. If I can get crazy over Colts football, then I can certainly get crazy over Jesus Christ. You understand? It's the same principle. So it, it, it comes down to that. Any time that we start rationalizing, any time we try intellectualizing something, then there is something wrong with us. I came into this church, I'm going to worship as best I can until the time that I'm, I'm taken out of here. Because that's what I started. That's what the Bible calls for, and it pleases God, and He inhabits the praises of His people. So we look at the first generation and the relationship to God. The period, and let's go back historically for a moment. The period of Israel's history contained in the book of Judges chronicles that roller coaster ride of human failure and God's intervention. After the death of Joshua, a total of approximately 400 years. Now the Bible says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. Characteristically, the first generation includes individuals who have received a spiritual experience with God. That's the first generation. They've had an experience with God. And they have new understanding of what truth or what this particular, what His truth is. And those of the first generation are genuinely dedicated to God and they place priority on the things that please God because they had an experience with God. And so, they desire that. Joshua's generation had a first-hand knowledge of God's miracles in the wilderness. From the Red Sea crossing to the banks of the Jordan River, they had an experience. The second generation includes individuals who were the children of those who received the first-hand knowledge or experience with God. Now, while this generation had a dedication to the God of their fathers, they only knew Him indirectly through their parents. Follow me. They, they copied their parents' lifestyle, fully embraced the doctrines and the behaviors modeled by their parents. However, that second generation was more dedicated to their parents' lifestyle than to their parents' God. Third generation. In the book of Judges were the grandchildren of the people who were delivered from Egypt. You can see that in, well, I'll just read it to you. Judges 2.10. It said, And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which had, uh, He had done for Israel. Joshua and Caleb were the only exceptions to their generation. They were two of the twelve spies that believed that nothing was impossible with God, that they could go in and they could take the land of Israel. They knew that that could happen. But the evil report of the other ten caused God to allow that generation to die off in the wilderness, with the exception, of course, of Joshua and Caleb.
The families who crossed Jordan and divided the land eventually died and were buried in what we now know as Israel. However, their children did not have a relationship with the God of their fathers. Somehow that generation did not transfer to their children the knowledge of God's powerful works, the fear of the Lord's judgment, and the necessity of obeying the law. So consequently they did evil in the sight of the Lord, forsook the God of their fathers, and they served Baal and Ashtoreth. That's what happened to that generation. The fourth generation, fourth generation is revival. Because the decline of spiritual values and the devastation left behind by the third generation. You understand where I'm going with this? You understand where I'm going because this, this is important. I think we're, we're starting to get into the fourth generation. I never had too much hope for my generation. Anybody, a bunch of people who wore sandals and peace signs wasn't too bright is what I figured. Okay. So I didn't have a whole lot of hope for them. And our generation is the last generation, but this next generation coming up is going to give us a short revival. You understand? Because that generation is coming up, and they're going to do a work. They're tired of seeing a lack. Now, now granted, and I want to say this, you, we don't have to, to, to live under the auspices of the, a generation who messed everything up. Each church is individual. Each person is individual. God deals with us individually. Okay, so, so he deals with us, and we don't have to choose to do this. But regardless, I see a generation that is coming up that, that, that are, are tired of seeing a lack of something. Now, along with this, there's going to be false prophets, and you see them cropping up. You're seeing false prophets are coming up, but people who have, that know the Word of God, they understand the Word of God, and they decide they're going to live by the Word of God, they are going to experience individual revival. Thus, we will have church-wide revival. Now, that's the way it works. So we look at each one. Each time Israel... Just, just stop and think about this for a moment. Thirteen times. Thirteen times the book of Judges talks about the uh, a judge. And, uh, you know, the, the, the captivity in the book of Judges. You know, children of Israel, they... Uh, they they were doing pretty good while Joshua was alive. Joshua died. The elders all died. Then the enemy came in. They went into captivity. Then they began to cry out for a deliverer. God raised a judge. They defeated the enemy. They went back into prosperity and spirituality for as long as the judge lived. Judge died. The enemy came in. They went into captivity. They cried out for a deliverer. God sent a deliverer. They did good as long as a deliverer was alive. Another judge. They did this 13 times. 13 times. And that still happens somewhat today. We have to make a decision that I do not... I, I'm not dependent on some of the elders that have gone before me. And they, have been, they, they set some great examples. But I don't need Lee Stone King to keep me in revival. I don't need... Uh, Jeff Arnold to keep me in revival. You understand that? You don't need me to keep you in revival. You do not need that. We have to understand that we have to want Jesus Christ more than anything else if we're going to have revival. 
And again, I made, I made mention that last generation of truth, although, and I'm, I'm quoting again, although the sectarian cycle generally operates over three generations, persons within a movement may escape the cyclic tendencies, regardless of a movement's generational trends, because God's focus is directed to you. It's to you individually. He still finds hungry individuals and extends to them benefits while turning from those who have alienated themselves from godly principles. Scripture records the faithful and courageous patriarchs who braved the scorn and the rejection of their generation to receive the favor of God. Jacob and Esau. Regardless of what you say about Jacob, the Bible says that Jacob God loved and Esau he hated. Simply because Jacob messed up a lot, did a lot of the wrong things, was a thief and so forth. But there was something in his heart that the desire desired God, where Esau did not have that. He may have been faithful to his family, but he did not have a hunger for God. And that's the key component right there. When a person has a hunger for God, regardless of how bad they are, God can use that individual and turn them around. Where you can set somebody on a church pew and they can go through the actions but not really desire God a bit and nothing will ever happen. I hope you understand that. I'm not justifying sin. I'm just saying that a person, you know, they may have temptations and trials and problems that occur in their life. But if their heart is still in tune with God and they know how to repent, God can do something with that person's life. I mean, you look at people, you look at the three Hebrew children in Babylon, they, they did not bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar. While, while a whole generation might be falling into apostasy, anyone who is genuinely hungry for God can seek His favor and receive a personal revelation and experience with Him. The decision remains with the individual. Everybody in here has got to make that decision on their own. That choice is up to you. No one can abrogate or overrule in any way what your, your ability to choose. Nobody can choose for you. No one can make you choose another way. That decision is up to you. If my family's going to go to heaven, then fathers, you've got to make that decision. And father, if you make that decision, mother better follow. No one can change that. You know, whatever you do as a family, as mother and father, in moderation, your children will do in excess. It's Robertson 6 and 5. You follow it. You look at what I'm saying. They will do it that way. That's, that's how it works. You may not like it, but it's the truth. Parents have the power and the responsibility to set the level of spirituality in their home. They should be the holy, consistent. Say consistent with me. Cons okay, we're saying it together. I know I some of you took you by surprise. You were asleep, snoring. All right, we're going to say consistent together. Are you ready? Consistent. There's an old saying that says, Consistency, consistency, thou art a jewel often wondered about why it said it that way, but after you've lived a little while, you realize how much of a jewel consistency is. Consistency. When you live holy, consistent, or are a consistent, holy, and positive role model, then you will see your children do the same thing. 
Furthermore, the Bible tells us to follow the admonition of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which is to teach their children diligently day and night. They should also involve their children in the kingdom of God by putting them to work in church-related activities. Just about missed it. I sometimes think people look at me a little oddly because if I see a child, not a child, a young teenager, I guess, that's doing well, like putting them in a Sunday school class. I, and I have nothing against, and I know, I, I realize that the youth, you know, they, they need each other and all this. But I, I put Daniel and, uh, and my daughter, 13 years old, in a Sunday school class. And it certainly didn't hurt them. Sometimes they need to be active. I mean, personally... When I was younger, I didn't need all the stuff that youth, young people need today. I, I, I just, and I realize that it seems like they need more attention than they've ever needed because it's the time we live in. But I like doing. I always did like doing. So let me do. Get me to a certain place, teach me, then leave me alone. I like doing ministers that way because that's the way I like to be done. I'll do it, but this is, you know, I'll do it. I don't need you to micromanage me. I don't need to be told the same thing over and over and over again. I need to take what I've learned and put it into practice. That's just Robertson 8 and 12. Okay. Now, personally teaching each child how to pray, read the Bible, witness to others, and give to the work of God and attend church faithfully is every parent's duty. However, when the child reaches adulthood, he still must decide. You can't make that decision for him. You have to teach them the right way. That child has to make the decision if they're going to follow the values of their parents and the convictions by which their, their family members consistently lived in their home. And eventually must become, those convictions have to become the child's convictions. Psalm 78, 3 and 4. These are great scriptures, by the way. You need to mark them in your Bible. Uh, Psalm 78, 3 and 4, and also Psalm 78 and 6. And it says, Which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. And in sight, that's 3 and 4, 78 and 6 says, That the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. Parents should remember, well, again, what they do. This is mine. What they do in moderation, the children will do in excess. They should. Now, how do you know that you've done well with your children? Question. Raise your hand. Don't blurt it out. How do you know you've done well? The obvious answer is, well, if they're living for God, I did well. That's not what I'm looking for. So don't answer that way. How do you know? Go ahead. Okay, that's a that's a good one. But let's let's think about this. How do you know? Let me let me. I may not phrase this correctly. How do you know that you did a good job raising your children? That's it. You only know by the way they raised their children if you did a good job on them. So you don't know yet, unless you got grandkids. I look at mine, I wonder a few times. No, I don't. The way they beat on me, hammer around on me. 
I mean, I, I get from America, I get this, I get this get well card, and he's drawing a picture on it of a pirate peg leg pap. So you wonder. <laughs> get no compassion around my house. <laughs> so you know, again, we go back to, let's, let's look at Scripture again. I read that Scripture to you earlier, but look at Proverbs 17 and 6. Children's children are the crown of old men. Okay, that's the crown of old men. So you know you did well by your children's children. And the glory of children are their fathers. So the glory of a child is his father. And it didn't really say the mother here. The father has to instill those spiritual values into their children. I'm not saying that, you know, I realize that they're single parents and so forth. I, I understand that. And I'm not, uh, I know mothers have done really good jobs with, with their children. I realize that. But the, the way to really instill it, to make it work, is for it to be by the father. Okay, Jeremiah 6.16 says, Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways... And see and ask for the old paths where it is good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Times, rulers, governments, languages, and culture change. People often change their view of life and the way they satisfy their needs and the manner in which they express themselves. All of these changes affect the church collectively and believers individually. However, there's one thing is timeless and unchanging, even in changing times. God's message for every generation. And while the methods of, of, of moving, transmitting, and communicating the message have changed, the message itself is still the same as when Paul preached it. And much of the time and traditions of mankind are connected to worldliness and violate the Word of God. Look at Colossians 2.8. It should be coming up behind me here. And, and, and we see and we understand that worldly traditions are not good. And we do associate a lot of the traditions with worldliness. But Paul also spoke of a tradition, of his tradition rather, as a necessary point of obedience in the church. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. He also instructed the Thessalonian church to stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Every generation should look for and stand true to biblical traditions and reject the pressures of the world around them to conform to worldly traditions. It is never comfortable to go against the tide of public opinion. It never will be. But God has never operated His kingdom based on the results of an opinion poll. You understand that? I don't care what the paper says. I don't care what the talking heads say. I could care less. God doesn't operate His kingdom that way. He operates His kingdom on how we are obedient to that. And how we, as individuals, can express our values and, and the traditions that have been passed down through godly people that originated here to our children. It's not a matter of what people think. And regardless, uh, how, whether we like it or not, you can get into Matthew 10, 34-36. should come up behind me. And it talks about a sword. Sometimes the Word of God brings a sword of division. And it does just that. It will bring a sort of division. 
countless times, and I can remember, and many of you have had the same experiences, raising my children the way that I believed and how the Word of God taught. When you went to family gatherings around holiday time, you had people who didn't understand, and they would try to get your kids to do things you didn't want them to do. You've had to deal with that. You've had to deal with that. And sometimes you irritated people and caused division. In the case with, with our, our family, everybody blamed me, my, my wife's family. Everybody blame me, and that's okay, because I'm the person who's going to stand <laughs> accountable for it. That's just, and I, I, you know, honestly, I, I don't like to cause problems. But when it comes to my kids making it to heaven, I could care less what anybody thinks one way or the other. It's not a public opinion, Paul. Not at all. In his epistle to the church, Jude urged us to earnestly contend. Now, this word contend is a good, a very interesting uh, Greek word, and I want you to follow this. I have no way that I could possibly pronounce it in the Greek, but it translates as contend, and it means to contend about a thing as a combatant to contend earnestly. In other words, you are willing to fight for it as a combatant. You will fight for it. Whatever it takes to get my kids where they need to be, I'm going to fight for it. I'll fight every devil in hell. I'll fight you. I'll fight whoever's necessary. But the most important thing is that when I stand before God at the end of all this, I've got them standing beside me. So therefore, we should consistently fight against the world's influence that would draw us away from truth. Jesus warned His disciples about false prophets. I brought that up earlier. And, and they will do their best. There's a lot of people out there that will tell you they believe the same way they do, but their lives show you something completely different. And you're going to know them by their fruits. You're going to know them. So we continue to be nice and you be sweet and all those things you're supposed to be, but there's lines that's drawn. This is as far as I go and no further. I read a, a priest some years ago and I read a, reread an article. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of reading recently, <laughs> more than normal. And I reread an article that I'd read about a 1914, uh, one of the last wild Native Americans. I still call them Indians, but I'll be politically correct. Uh, it was in California. And in fact, uh, uh, where Pope and Young, and some of you don't understand that, Pope and Young is a, a group of they who measure uh, trophies that are killed with a bow and arrow. And uh, Pope and Young, that the they, Pope, actually got in with this, this last, he came out of the mountains in California and uh, he actually taught him, really established modern archery, was through this Indian. And he taught him how to make bows and how to hunt, how, he, you know, how, they, how it worked and all. And um, when he died, when this Indian died, the, this was a, the Pope was a doctor and he was with him. And the last words that he said was, I go, you stay. And he died. And I, I preached on it some time ago, but, but uh, I, I thought of it again about it. I go, you stay. And that's how we need to feel about all this. I'm going to go. You can stay if you want to. You understand that? I'm going to do better. I'm going to live for God. I'm going to go to heaven. My children are going to live for God. They're going to go to heaven. If you want to stay, you stay. 
You can stay and you can play church. You can come and you can go through all the social graces and all that goes along with this. But I'm going to come. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to get something from the, the Word of God. I'll fellowship with people who like, are like me. I'll fellowship with people who are like me. I'll fellowship with people who are like me. If you try to drag me down, I'm not going to fellowship with you. Because I'm going to go. You can stay if you want to. So we have to sometimes be combative when it comes to this. And there's going to be a lot of people who try to pull you down. Proverbs 22:28 says, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Landmarks are reference points agreed upon regarding a piece of property and then recorded to announce the right and the limits of ownership. Moses warned Israel not to move a neighbor's landmark. Because landmarks was set by older generations. And in fact, Moses pronounced a curse on anybody who moved the landmark. And, and there was a, a purpose in that. Because if you moved a landmark, you were declaring war. So one household would be at war with another household as a result of moving a landmark. And that's why he's saying what he did. He put a curse. You can read that in Deuteronomy 27:17. Landmarks can also provide reference points for guidance and direction. For example, the location of a large water tower in a city sometimes serves as a starting point for surveying lots within that city. Every reference point for that lot goes back to that water tower. Now today we refer to a specific doctrines and convictions as landmarks of distinction that separate God's people from the secular world and the apostate religious world. And, and, and there are explicit reasons for the decisions that were made by the apostles in the book of Acts, and they became a pattern for the New Testament church to follow. Indefinitely a pattern. It didn't say that he changed things. A lot of denominations say that things that are written in the book of Acts was for them alone at that time. I have never seen anywhere where it said that. In fact, the book of Acts has never been completed. It doesn't say amen at the end of it. So it's still being written today. So we have to go back to that point and find out what the apostles taught. That's our landmark. That is our landmark. And we do not go outside the boundaries, nor do we move the boundaries. What was right for them, for the promises unto you, and to your children, and to all them that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call, those landmarks are not to be moved. Boy, I'd like to really get into something right now, but I don't want to. It's not really. I, I, I so I, I so have such a problem because I see people who and I made I made this statement earlier. I see people who are single parents who still raise their children the right way and do not blame the other spouse for the problems. But it is so easy because I want what I want. To just let that kid be flushed down the toilet, excuse me. And not try to fight to get that child into heaven. I have such a hard time with that. 
I don't care how much you talk in tongues, how many prophecies you give, how much wisdom God's given you, how much you float around the sanctuary. If your children are not going to make it to heaven, then what have you accomplished? And if I'm stepping on your toes, forgive me, I realize they get a certain age and they've got to make their own decisions and some of them make bad ones. But a lot of times if you raise them right, they get back. All right? And that's what we have to depend on. But you know in your heart what you've done. And when you really don't care, you can say the right words to me and to someone else. Oh, I've done all I can do. I, I, I don't know. No. No, don't, don't, don't tell me you've done all you can do. Don't tell me when you know good and well in your heart that you haven't. Anyway, what's the matter with you, Robertson? Well, I'm just feeling anointing there this morning. I can't help it. Actually, I'm standing a little bit more on my foot. So, there we go. I may stay up here the rest of the day. <laughs> Foundation of a building is what defines the size and shape of that building. And Paul compared the church with the building. And probably what Paul was comparing it to was the temple. He was making comparison to the temple itself, which was a structure of it was great beauty, great expense, and it was great sacredness. And it would have been natural to compare the church with it. In Old Testament worship, the temple was a sacred place uh, that where, where God dwelt on the earth. And, and now the transfer was made to the church and as a place where He abides. We are His temple. And Paul declared that this new building was permanently founded, rising in unity and growing into a holy sanctuary. The doctrines the apostles taught are the foundations upon which the church rests and not the apostles themselves. Understand that. It wasn't the apostles themselves. It was, on what they, it was on what they taught. And generally, the prophets of the Old Testament represent the Old Testament era. The doctrines of divine revelation, whether communicated by the prophets or the apostles, were laid in the foundation of the New Testament church. It was not founded on philosophy, nor was it founded on tradition of men. In human, or even on human laws, if you would. It was not founded that way. But on the great truths that God had revealed to them. Paul did not say the church was founded upon Peter. He did not. But upon the prophets and the apostles collectively. In reference to the church, we should note the following. Philosophy does not deserve our confidence as a basis of doctrine. It does not. There's all kinds of philosophies out there. There's all kinds of people that know how that you ought to live and how you should raise your children. But their philosophies are not based on the Word of God. It's not on that at all. It's on what they think is best. What we need to understand is God knows what's best for us since He created us in His own image. I would believe that He would understand what's best for us. And so we don't regard that. Human tradition has no place in the foundation. Nothing is regarded as fundamental except what we find in the words of the prophets and the apostles or the Scriptures. Therefore, we are to use no decrees, no ordinance, no creeds or confessions as an authority in teaching the believer. Only what is founded upon the authority of the apostles and prophets or the truth. Ephesians 2.20 That is the only thing that we are founded upon and are built upon the foundation of the apostles, prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Everything leans 
on the cornerstone. This foundation that I have, that I have built personally within this temple, has got to lean on the truth of Jesus Christ and who He is. He is the mighty God, the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one God that manifested Himself in flesh and came down and died for the sins of a world. He died on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He loved us so much that His blood still cleanses us today. Aren't you glad that you know who He is? Let's stand to our feet and give Him a hand clap. McCormick's Creek Church is going to heaven. Stand up. Stay standing. McCormick's Creek Church is going to heaven. My children and your children are going to heaven. Your grandchildren are going to heaven. We're not going to settle for second best. We're going to win everybody we can, and that's including our family. We're not, inc- we're not settling for anything less. Mmm... Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, it feels good. Come early and pray tonight. Come early and pray tonight. Let's have... I, I, I so, so deeply feel the need for us to settle this year, 2011, to settle some things in our lives. What's important for us, our children, to teach them what's right, to teach them to witness, to teach them that we love them. And outside of God, they're the most important thing. Our family is the most important thing in our lives. I'm going to do whatever's necessary to see to it they make it to heaven. Lord bless you. Again, come early to pray. Let's have church tonight. Let's have church tonight. Everybody want to have church? Give him a hand. You're dismissed. Get your kids.